We are in the middle of uh, a sermon series in 1 Peter, and we've entitled that sermon series, Sojourners, Faith in Exile, because Peter writes to this group of people that he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. They're elect because they're chosen by God. He's given them this great salvation through his son, Jesus. And Peter spends a great deal of time laying that out in chapter one and at the beginning of chapter two as well. But they're exiles, literally because they live in a country that's not their own. They're also exiles in a spiritual sense because they are citizens of heaven. Their primary loyalty is now to Jesus. And that's us as well. We are spiritual exiles in that sense, in that we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We are of heaven. We're from heaven. That's where our true citizenship, our true home is. And Peter lays out our marching orders for us in chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles. Chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. And Peter says this, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, we have, there's two goals that we have as exiles. The first is that we would abstain from sin, from the passions that war against our flesh. We would abstain from those things and become more like Jesus. The theological word for that is sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is actually that we would keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they see how we live, even though they accuse us as evildoers, they would eventually begin to follow Jesus as well. That they would give glory to God on the day of his return of visitation. It's our witness. And so our role as exiles is about our own sanctification and about our witness to our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, to those in our community, to our country, and to the world. Two things. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these commands that follow from Peter. Two weeks ago, we looked at the command to be subject to every human institution, to the governing authorities. Last week, we looked at this command from servants, employees, to be subject to their masters, their employers. And this week, we're going to look at the institution of marriage. But all of these commands are a way of living out what we read in verse 11 and 12, to, to abstain from the passions that war against the flesh, to become more like Jesus, and to have a witness in the world. And so we're going to look at how a godly marriage does both of those things this morning. It does both of those things. I'm excited to preach about marriage this morning because uh, my wife and I are going to be married 10 years this year in August. And marriage has been for me one of the most key means of sanctification in my life. My wife has been part of seeing me become more like Christ. And I've had the, the, the honor and the privilege of being part of her becoming more like Christ as well. And I can remember when we were going to get married. And I was telling my friends at, at university that we were getting married. And they were like, you're not going to live together first? Are you nuts? And I had the opportunity to share about why we hadn't slept together yet, why we hadn't lived together yet, why 
we were getting married and how Jesus played into all of that. It was a key means of witness as well as we kept our conduct honorable before the Gentiles. And so Peter tells us about that. You'll notice as we go through that Peter addresses certain commands to wives and certain commands to husbands. And the reason for that is because God made men and women differently, not lesser or greater, just different and beautiful in their own right. He gave, and some of that does come from how he created us as men and women. Some of that also comes from the fall. If you look back at Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, God is announcing the effects of the curse as a result of sin to Adam and Eve. And the way that it affects Eve as a woman and Adam as a man is different. And so the way that these things are addressed in the New Testament by Peter, by Paul, by others as well, it addresses some of those besetting sins for wives and besetting sins for husbands as well. But with that said, these principles really are valid for everyone. I always like to say that marriage advice, good principles in marriage, is actually just good relationship advice. Whether that's in the context of your family, in the context of your church, if you're dating someone, if in a friendship, these are just good principles. Even though as we go through, these will be some of the times we're addressing ourselves to, we're addressing wives or we're addressing husbands. The broader picture is these are godly principles for all of us. And so Peter begins in chapter 3 and verse 1, and he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so Peter says the first characteristic of a godly wife is that godly wives are subject to their own husbands. Note very carefully, very specifically, that he says a godly wife is subject to her own husband, not to somebody else's husband, not to men in general, to her own husband. And that that word, be subject to, it, it means to honor, to respect. The broader context of marriage is actually one of mutual submission. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 21 and 22, he says to everyone in the church, including husbands and wives in marriage, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so marriage is built on a mutual submission to marriage. And within that, then, Peter and Paul as well say, wives, be subject to your husbands. We need to talk about what that means just a second. It's a functional submission. It's a functional submission. What that means is it's a type of submission that makes sure that the, the teamwork, the, the, the team, the partnership of marriage can work. That it doesn't get held up by indecision, by who, who, who's, who's making the decision here. God in his sovereignty has ordained that men should be the head of the household. For better or for worse, ladies, you know this. And Peter says, wives be subject to your own Husbands, it's a functional submission for the sake of the relationship, the marriage relationship. Let me tell you what it's not. This is not a call 
to subject yourself to physical abuse. The laws of the land don't accept that. Scripture doesn't accept that. This is not that. This is not a call to subject yourself into following your husband into sin. This is not that either. Ladies, this is not either a call to erase your character, your personality, or a call to be weak-willed. This is not that either. And it's not a question of who's more capable. We all know that women are often, I know, my wife is often more capable than I am, if I'm honest. This is not a question of who's more capable. It's a functional submission in that sense, an honoring, a respecting. And so Peter continues and he says, he, he addresses a very particular type of situation. He says, he's talking about the household where the wife is, is a follower of Jesus and the husband is not. And that kind of household is difficult. There's tension in the marriage, in the relationship, when one follows one faith and the other spouse follows another faith, a different belief system. And the reason that it's, there's tension is because, as Tozer said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And so when one spouse is a follower of Jesus and the other is not, that very deep, very intimate spiritual bond is not there. And it's difficult. So Peter says in that context, wives, your approach should be to continue to being subject to your own husband. You see, and this is a con- this is probably a situation he's, 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 he's addressing here where the wife, both were not followers of Jesus and the wife became a follower of Jesus. And now the husband has shut down all conversation. He's heard the word, Peter says, and he has not obeyed it. He's rejected it. And perhaps he's even shut down further conversation with his wife about it. And Peter is saying, wives, the tension, the, 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 the temptation here is to try and win him with words, to wear him down over time, to debate him into the kingdom, perhaps to to manipulate him with your words and your actions as well. And Peter says, don't do that. It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. Rather, continue to be subject to him so that he may be one without a word. I love the word play there. He's rejected the word, but you're going to win him without a word. By what? By your respectful and pure conduct. By your respectful and pure conduct. What does that look like? We just need to go back a few verses to the end of chapter 2. And Peter describes Jesus. He describes that pure and respectful conduct in chapter 2 and verse 22. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was pure. He was holy, both in conduct and in word. No deceitful word came out of his mouth. He continues in verse 23 and says, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was pure and he was respectful. He submitted himself to the governing authorities, even though they were wrong about who he was. And because he suffered at their hands. That's what pure and respectful conduct looks like. It's not weak. It's not an erasing of one's character. Jesus certainly, his character shines through. 
And he is strong. He didn't back down either. Wives, that kind of sacrificial love towards your husband has the power to transform him, Peter says. They will be one without a word. And the beauty of this is actually as as you trust God by relating to your husband in that way, God actually will change him and he'll change you in the process. It's marvelous. As you live out that sacrificial love towards your husband, he changes you as well. And the result is that you are both wind up becoming more like Christ and the husband he winds up believing. This is true for every household. It's true for all relationships. Sometimes we, we want to address the problem head on and butt heads. But actually, Peter suggests an indirect approach. If you trust God and you are sacrificially loving towards your spouse, it has the power to transform them, husbands and wives alike. Peter continues in verse chapter, verse 4, and he says the second characteristic of a godly wife is that they prioritize their inner appearance. Look at what he says. He says, sorry, in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which at God's sight is very precious. Ladies, there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. There's nothing wrong with putting time and effort into your outward outward appearance. The problem, Peter says, is when we put more time, more effort, more money into our outward appearance than into our inward appearance. When there's that imbalance, we got to get the balance right there. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says that physical training is of some value. It's not of no value. It has value. Taking care of your outward appearance has value. But that value has limits. It's of some value. That means that at some point it stops being of value. But he says, he continues, Paul does in 1 Timothy 4, and he says, but training in godliness is of value in every way, both in this life and the next. We need to get our priorities straight, ladies, but men too. Focus on the inner appearance. The inner appearance. Peter describes that beauty as being imperishable. He's used that phrase four times up to here. There's four things that he describes as imperishable. In in chapter 1 and verse 4, he says that we have an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, and imperishable, guarded for us in heaven. In chapter 1 and verse 7, he says that a faith that has been refined through necessary trials is imperishable as well. In chapter 1 and verse 19, he says that Jesus' blood, the blood of Jesus shed for you and I is imperishable. And lastly, in verse 23 of chapter 1, he says that the word of God is imperishable. Ladies, that beauty, that inner beauty is imperishable. Because the reality is this, if we're spending all of our time and effort and money into building up our outward appearance, perhaps not just your body, but your, your, your wealth as well, that new car, the new house, whatever those things are, we're fighting a losing battle because all of them 
are fading and they will one day cease to exist. This body is going away. That new car is going away. We're fighting a losing battle. And Peter says, invest in the inner person. Wives, invest in your inner appearance. He says, he describes that inner beauty, that imperishable beauty. It's a gentle and quiet spirit. I can't think of a description that is less celebrated by our culture in these days than someone who has a a gentle and a quiet spirit, especially a wife. But Jesus uses those exact words to describe himself in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 29 and 30. He says, he, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am quiet and a gentle spirit. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus is not weak. He's strong. And the picture here is a picture of a strong, powerful horse that's bridled, that's under control, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Ladies, you're strong. You can be strong, but under control, the control of the Holy Spirit. And when we're controlled by the Spirit, filled with His power, that means you're able to use that strength with discernment and wisdom. The right word at the right time to your husband. Gentlemen, we need that word as well, though. We need to be filled with the Spirit, to be power under control, to be meek. It's not celebrated of wives. It's not really celebrated of men either in our culture. Peter ends these verses to women with the example of Sarah. And he says in verse 5, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. He says, listen, the holy women of old in the Old Testament, of whom Sarah is the, the archetype, she's the archetypal woman of the Old Testament in this case. He says, actually, they trusted, they, they subjected themselves to their husbands because they trusted God. Because they trusted God. And then he pulls out Sarah as an example. And what he's referring to is the time when the angels came to Abraham and Sarah's in the tent and the angels promised Abraham that he would have a child. He and Sarah would have a child in their old age after they were way past the time of childbearing. And they reaffirmed that promise to him and that this child would bear would become a great nation. And Sarah's in the tent and she hears and she laughs. And she says, do they really think that I will... Give my Lord, referring to her husband Abraham, a child in my old age. I'm past that time. She laughs in unbelief. And if you look at the wider story of Sarah, it's hard to see why Peter pulls her out as an example. Because she made lots of mistakes, and so did Abraham. But just a few chapters later, in chapter 21, she has a child. She's trusted God. And she says, actually, God has given me laughter. And Isaac, the name of their son, means one who laughs. God has given me laughter and people will laugh over me. The writer of Hebrews includes her in in what sometimes is called the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 11, it says that Sarah trusted God because she believed that he who promised was faithful. And so despite outward appearances, God knew her heart. 
she trusted him. That is the call at the end of the day, this morning, is wives, will you trust God in your marriage, with your marriage? For the way he's designed designed marriage to work, for the way, for the husband he has given you, for the circumstances your marriage is in, will you trust him for those things? Peter next addresses husbands. You might notice that there's a slight imbalance in that Peter addresses six verses to wives and just one to us men. But that verse, it packs a punch. It packs a punch. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And here's the first characteristic of a godly husband is that they know their wives. And Peter says that begins by living with them. Now, now most of us men, we look at that and go, Great, check, I got that one. Yep, live at the same address as my wife. We sleep in the same bed. We eat the same food. Our laundry's done together. Done, I live with my wife. Great, that's not what Peter's talking about. It's part of it. It starts there in a sense. But when he says live with your wives, what he's talking about is togetherness, partners, teammates. Do you live with your wife, not just at the same address? And gentlemen, this is addressed to us. We are to be the first to ask forgiveness, the first to repair that relationship when we feel that we're drifting apart. It's not that that wives, you can't participate in that and address it first, but men, the command here is to us. It's on us. First to ask forgiveness, the first to address when we feel like we're drifting apart, when there's something wrong. We're, we're given the responsibility for the togetherness of our relationship. And that's a good thing because, honestly, most of us men are not very good at that. The command is to us. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Men, husbands, we need to understand and know our wives deeply. We need to be students of our wives, their personality, their likes, their dislikes, their needs, their strengths, their weaknesses, their fears, and their hopes, their joys. Not so that we can use them against them to beat them down, but so that we can encourage them and lift them up so that they can be the best they can be to see them prosper and become more like Christ. And so, gentlemen, it's your job, it's our job as husbands to learn to speak her language and then to teach her to speak ours. To learn to enjoy what she enjoys and then to teach her to speak, to to enjoy what we enjoy. That's the order in that sense. And that responsibility is given to us. Does your wife feel understood? You should ask her. I asked my wife this last night. And it was a good conversation. Take her answer at face value. It's a good answer. This is what Jesus did for us. This is why we're called to do this. Just as our wives are called to be Christ to us, we also are called to be Christ to our wives. Jesus says John in chapter 1 of his gospel, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He moved into the neighborhood. 
so that he could know us. And now we have a God who understands us because he made the first move. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He came to serve us. We are servant leaders in our homes. That's how we lead. We lead by serving. That's what Jesus did for his disciples in the upper room. The Son of God came down, he put on flesh, and he stripped off his clothes and he put on a towel and he started washing his disciples' feet. The, the job that no one else wanted. The job that was given to the, the, the lowest servant. Jesus did that. Man, that's how we are to serve in our homes and to serve our wives. The second thing that Paul says, the second characteristic of godly husbands is that they show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. We need to show honor to our wives as the weaker vessel. Godly husbands honor their wives. Man, have you assigned a place of honor to your wife in your home? Do you treasure her? Psalm Proverbs 31 talks about the, the virtuous woman, and it says that her husband sings her praises. Do you sing your wife's praises to whoever will listen? Do you listen to her? We honor our wives by listening to them. We honor our wives by understanding them. We acknowledge their insights and their wisdom because they're usually right. How you talk to your wife, to her face, behind her back when she's not present. How you talk about her to your children and in front of your children. It matters. There's a lot riding on it. Because the way that your son sees you talk to your wife is the way he will likely treat his wife. And it's the way your daughter will expect to be treated. And there's a lot riding on this. Godly husbands honor their wives. Peter says two reasons why we should do that. First, because they're the weaker vessel. Often, women are indeed physically weaker. Sometimes, not always, but some often. But often they're also stronger in other ways. I think what Peter's getting at here when he says that uses that term, the weaker vessel, is that because women have, have give, been given this command to functionally submit in the context of their own marriages, they are in a weaker position in that sense. They're not the team captain, as it were. And so we actually need to honor them. Remember, submitting wives submit to your husbands means wives honor your husbands. And here, Peter is saying, husbands, honor your wives. There's, it's a two-way street here in many ways. Honor your wives because they're the weaker vessel, but also because they are co-heirs of the grace of life. They may have been called to be functionally subject, to honor you and respect you as the head of the household in that respect, but they are equal to you. Your wife is your equal, both personally, as a human being, and spiritually before God, co-heirs of the grace of life. And so, gentlemen, we need to honor our wives as humans, as women, as wives, as mothers. In the workplace as well, across the spectrum of everything that she is and does, honor your wife. And Peter ends with this warning. He says, do this 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is one of my favorite and most feared verses in all of Scripture. It's my favorite because God is calling me to something higher, a higher standard as a husband than any worldly standard that's out there. And I love being called to that, but I'm afraid of it because it means that that my vertical relationship with God and my horizontal relationship with my wife are integral, intimately linked. If I'm not loving my wife, my prayer life will be hindered. And gentlemen, if you have no prayer life, your prayer life is ineffective. Your life is ineffective. So love your wives. Can I suggest to you that if you're not married, this principle is still valid. Your vertical relationship with God is still connected with your horizontal relationship with other people. And so these commands to to know, to understand people in relationships, to honor them properly. If you're not married, the question for you is this. How do you relate to people you're in relationship with, especially those who have a greater or lesser capacity within you? Do you work hard at understanding them? Do you work hard at honoring them properly? That's the principle for all of us there. Paul sums up this command to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and 25, and he says it like this. He says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, and he laid down his life for her. The call, men, to our wives is to love them sacrificially. Is to love them sacrificially. In other words, Whatever you need to give up to love love your wife well, do it. It's worth it. Because that has the power to transform her. And along the way, God transforms you as well. And it's a marvelous thing in his eyes. As we close, if you're someone who has been listening along, hopefully if you're still here, I'm, 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 I'm so glad. But if you're not a a Jesus follower and you've been listening along and you're going, man, this is old-fashioned, archaic, reinforcing old-fashioned gender roles, what is this baloney? I hear you. I really do. Because we live in a culture that says, you do you, be yourself, follow your heart. In other words, live for you over and above everybody else. But can I suggest to you that ultimately, that way of living your life is empty. It's purposeless. It's devoid of meaning. Because you wind up with just yourself. And and actually, Jesus presents us with a new way of being human. A way, of human, a way of being human where, paradoxically, you have to lose yourself to find yourself. And we see that put into practice in marriage, where you give yourself up for the sake of your spouse. And actually, there's deep meaning. There's great purpose. There's, there's incredible beauty in that way of living life. And so can I encourage you, if you are longing for that meaning, that purpose, that beauty in your own life, Look to Jesus. He's got a new way to be human. And it's strange, but you have to lose yourself in order to find yourself in him.
Friends, I'm not sure where the Spirit was speaking to you this morning. Relationships, perhaps wider relationships, perhaps in your marriage, where you need to love your love that person, love your spouse, your husband, your wife, as Christ loves them, to be Christ to them, to love them sacrificially. Can I just remind you that the goal of here, the larger goal, is, is, that, is for God's purposes in our own sanctification, the sanctification of your spouse, and also for our witness in our world. And our world is desperate for healthy marriages and healthy families because they are the foundation of society. And just as an aside, healthy marriages are a really good place to raise children. We need to work at our marriages. Where do you need to work at your marriage? I want to close with that verse again from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Peter says, sorry, Paul says, love one another, submit, sorry, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, you need to be surrendered to Christ first in order to be able to submit to one another. That's what out of reverence means. We need to be submitted to Christ, surrender to him fully before we can submit to one another. We're going to close with that song, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. Would you recommit, re-surrender yourself to Jesus this morning for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of our witness to the watching world? Let's close in song. Thank you.